Chapters 9 and 10 of Part 1 The Song of the Lark This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kate Sterner The Song of the Lark by Willis Ebert Cather Chapter 9 of Part 1 Mr. Kronborg considered Thea a remarkable child, but so were all his children remarkable. If one of the businessmen downtown remarked to him that he had a mighty bright little girl there, he admitted it, and at once began to explain what a long head for business his son Gus had, or that Charlie was a natural electrician and had put in a telephone from the house to the preacher's study behind the church. Mrs. Kronborg watched her daughter thoughtfully. She found her more interesting than her other children, and she took her more seriously, without thinking much about why she did so. The other children had to be guided, directed, kept from conflicting with one another. Charlie and Gus were likely to want the same thing, and to quarrel about it. Anna often demanded unreasonable service from her older brothers, that they should sit up until after midnight to bring her home from parties when she did not like the youth who had offered himself as her escort, or that they should drive twelve miles into the country, on a winter night, to take her to a ranch dance, after they had been working hard all day. Gunnar often got bored with his own clothes or stilts or sled, and wanted axles. But Thea, from the time she was a little thing, had her own routine. She kept out of everyone's way, and was hard to manage only when the other children interfered with her. Then there was trouble indeed, bursts of temper, which used to alarm Mrs. Kronborg. "'You ought to know well enough to let Thea alone. She lets you alone,' she often said to the other children. One may have staunch friends in one's own family, but one seldom has admirers. Thea, however, had one in the person of her adulpated aunt, Tilly Kronborg, in older countries where dress and opinions and manners are not so thoroughly standardized as in our own West, there is a belief that people who are foolish about more obvious things of life are apt to have peculiar insight into what lies beyond the obvious. The old woman who can never learn not to put the kerosene can on the stove may yet be able to tell fortunes, to persuade a backward child to grow, to cure warts, or to tell people what to do with a young girl who has gone melancholy. Tilly's mind was a curious machine. When she was awake, it went round like a wheel when the belt has slipped off, and when she was asleep, she dreamed follies. But she had intuitions. She knew, for instance, that Thea was different from the other Kronborgs, worthy though they all were. Her romantic imagination found possibilities in her niece, when she was sweeping or ironing, or turning the ice-cream freezer at a furious rate, she often built up brilliant futures for Thea, adapting freely the latest novel she had read. Tilly made enemies for her niece among the church people because, at sewing societies and church suppers, she sometimes spoke vauntingly, with a toss of her head, just as if Thea's wonderfulness were an accepted fact in Moonstone like Mrs. Archie's stinginess or Mrs. Livery Johnson's duplicity. People declared that, on this subject, 
Tilly made them tired. Tilly belonged to a dramatic club that once a year performed in the Moonstone Opera House such plays as Among the Breakers and The Veteran of 1812. Tilly played character parts, the flirtatious old maid or the spiteful intrigante. She used to study her parts up in the attic at home. While she was committing the lines, she got Gunnar or Anna to hold the book for her. But when she began to bring out the expression, as she said, she used, very timorously, to ask Thea to hold the book. Thea was usually, not always, agreeable about it. Her mother had told her that, since she had some influence with Tilly, it would be a good thing for them all if she could tone her down a shade and keep her from taking on any worse than need be. Thea would sit on the foot of Tilly's bed, her feet tucked under her, and stare at the silly text. "'I wouldn't make so much fuss there, Tilly,' she would remark occasionally. "'I don't see the point in it,' or, "'What do you pitch your voice so high for? It don't carry half as well.' "'I don't see how it comes Thea is so patient with Tilly,' Mrs. Kronborg more than once remarked to her husband. "'She ain't patient with most people, but it seems like she's got a peculiar patience for Tilly.' Tilly always coaxed Thea to go behind the scenes with her when the club presented a play, and help her with her makeup. Thea hated it, but she always went. She felt as if she had to do it. There was something in Tilly's adoration of her that compelled her. There was no family impropriety that Thea was so much ashamed of as Tilly's acting, and yet she was always being dragged in to assist her. Tilly simply had her there. She didn't know why, but it was so. There was a string in her somewhere that Tilly could pull, a sense of obligation to Tilly's misguided aspirations. The saloon-keepers had some such feeling of responsibility toward Spanish Johnny. The dramatic club was the pride of Tilly's heart and her enthusiasm was the principal factor in keeping it together. Sick or well, Tilly always attended rehearsals, and was always urging the young people, who took rehearsals lightly, to stop fooling around and begin now. The young men, bank clerks, grocery clerks, insurance agents, played tricks, laughed at Tilly, and put it up on each other about seeing her home, but they often went to tiresome rehearsals just to oblige her. They were good-natured young fellows. Their trainer and stage manager was young Upping, the jeweler who ordered Thea's music for her. Though barely thirty, he had followed half a dozen professions, and had once been a violinist in the orchestra of the Andrews Opera Company, then well known in little towns throughout Colorado and Nebraska. By one amazing indiscretion, Tilly very nearly lost her hold upon the Moonstone Drama Club, the club had decided to put on The Drummer Boy of Shiloh, a very ambitious undertaking because of the many supers needed and the scenic difficulties of the act, which took place in Andersonville Prison. The members of the club consulted together in Tilly's absence as to who should play the part of the drummer boy. It must be taken by a very young person, and the village boys of that age are self-conscious and are not apt to memorizing. The part was a long one and clearly it must be given to a girl. Some members of the club suggested Thea Kronborg. Others advocated Lily Fisher. Lily's partisans urged that she was much prettier than Thea, and had a much sweeter disposition. Nobody denied these facts. 
but there was nothing in the least boyish about Lily, and she sang all songs and played all parts alike. Lily's simper was popular, but it seemed not quite the right thing for the heroic drummer boy. Upping, the trainer, talked to one and another. Lily's all right for girls' parts, he insisted. But you've got to get a girl with some ginger in her for this. Thea's got the voice, too. When she sings just before the battle, mother, she'll bring down the house. When all the members of the club had been privately consulted, they announced their decision to Tilly at the first regular meeting that was called to cast the parts. They expected Tilly to be overcome with joy, but on the contrary she seemed embarrassed. "'I'm afraid Thea hasn't got time for that,' she said jerkily. "'She is always so busy with her music. Guess you'll have to find somebody else.' The club lifted its eyebrows. Several of Lily Fisher's friends coughed. Mr. Upping flushed. The stout woman, who always played the injured wife, called Tilly's attention to the fact that this would be a fine opportunity for her niece to show what she could do. Her tone was condescending. Tilly threw up her head and laughed. There was something sharp and wild about Tilly's laugh when it was not a giggle. "'Oh, I guess Thea hasn't got time to do any showing off. Her time to show off ain't come yet. I expect she'll make us all sit up when it does.' No use asking her to take the part. She'd turn her nose up at it. I guess they'd be glad to get her in the Denver Dramatics if they could. The company broke up into groups and expressed their amazement. Of course all Swedes were conceited, but they would never have believed that all the conceit of the Swedes put together could reach such a pitch as this. They confided to each other that Tilly was just a little off on the subject of her niece and agreed that it would be as well not to excite her further. Tilly got a cold reception at rehearsals for a long while afterward, and Thea had a crop of new enemies without even knowing it. Chapter 10 Wunsch and Old Fritz and Spanish Johnny celebrated Christmas together so riotously that Wunsch was unable to give Thea her lesson the next day. In the middle of the vacation week, Thea went to the Kohlers through a soft, beautiful snowstorm. The air was a tender blue-gray, like the color on the doves that flew in and out of the white dove-house on the post in the Kohlers' garden. The sand-hills looked dim and sleepy. The tamarisk hedge was full of snow, like a foam of blossoms drifted over it. When Thea opened the gate, old Mrs. Kohler was just coming in from the chicken-yard, with five fresh eggs in her apron and a pair of old top-boots on her feet. She called Thea to come and look at the bantam egg, which she held up proudly. Her bantam hens were remiss in zeal, and she was always delighted when they accomplished anything. She took Thea into the sitting-room, very warm and smelling of food, and brought her a plateful of little Christmas cakes made according to old and hallowed formulae, and put them before her while she warmed her feet. Then she went to the door of the kitchen stairs and called, Herr Wunsch! Herr Wunsch! Wunsch came down wearing an old wadded jacket with a velvet collar. The brown silk was so worn that the wadding stuck out almost everywhere. He avoided Thea's eyes when he came in, nodded without speaking, and pointed directly to the piano stool. 
he was not so insistent upon the scales as usual, and throughout the little sonata of Mozart's she was studying, he remained languid and absent-minded. His eyes looked very heavy, and he kept wiping them with one of the new silk handkerchiefs Mrs. Kohler had given him for Christmas. When the lesson was over, he did not seem inclined to talk. Thea, loitering on the stool, reached for a tattered book she had taken off the music-rest when she sat down. It was a very old Leipzig edition of the piano score of Gluck's Orpheus. She turned over the pages curiously. "'Is it nice?' she asked. "'It is the most beautiful opera ever made,' Punch declared solemnly. "'You know the story, eh? How when she die, Orpheus went down below for his wife.' "'Yes, I know. I didn't know there was an opera about it, though. Do people sing this now?' "'Aber ja! What else? You like to try? See!' He drew her from the stool and sat down at the piano. Turning over the leaves to the third act, he handed the score to Thea. "'Listen, I play it through, and you get very rhythmous. Eins, zwei, drei, vier!' He played through Orpheus's lament, then pushed back his cuffs with awakening interest and nodded at Thea. Now, vom Blatt mit mir! Ach, ich habe sie verloren all, mein Glück ist nun dahin! Wunsch sang the aria with much feeling. It was evidently one that was very dear to him. Noch ein Mile alone yourself! He played the introductory measures, then nodded at her vehemently, and she began. Ach, ich habe sie verloren. When she finished, Wunsch nodded again. Schön, he muttered as he finished the accompaniment softly. He dropped his hands on his knees and looked up at Thea. That is very fine, eh? There is no such beautiful melody in the world. You can take the book for one week and learn something to pass the time. It is good to know, always. Eurydice, Eurydice, weh, dass ich auf Erden bin, he sang softly, playing the melody with his right hand. Thea, who was turning over the pages of the third act, stopped and scowled at a passage. The old German's blurred eyes watched her curiously. For what do you look so, Immer, puckering up his own face? You see something a little difficult, maybe, and you make such a face like it was an enemy. Thea laughed, disconcerted. Well, difficult things are enemies, aren't they, when you have to get them? Wunsch lowered his head and threw it up as if he were butting something. Not at all, by no means. He took the book from her and looked at it. Yes, that is not so easy there. This is an old book. They do not print it so now any more, I think. They leave it out, maybe. Only one woman could sing that good, Wunsch went on. It is written for alto, you see. A woman sings the part, and there was only one to sing that good in there. You understand? Only one. He glanced at her quickly and lifted his red forefinger upright before her eyes. Thea looked at the finger as if she were hypnotized. Only one, she asked breathlessly. Her hands, hanging at her sides, were opening and shutting rapidly. Wunsch nodded and still held up that compelling finger. 
when he dropped his hands, there was a look of satisfaction in his face. Was she very great? Wunsch nodded. Was she beautiful? Aber gar nicht. Not at all. She was ugly. Big mouth, big teeth, no figure, nothing at all. Indicating a luxuriant bosom by sweeping his hands over his chests. A pole, a post. But the voice, ah, she had something in there, behind the eyes, tapping his temples. Thea followed all his gesticulations intently. Was she German? No, Spanish. He looked down and frowned for a moment. Ah, I tell you, she looked like the Frau Telemantes, something, long face, long chin, and ugly also. Did she die a while ago? Die? I think not. I never hear, anyhow. I guess she is alive somewhere in the world, Paris maybe. But old, of course. I hear her when I was a youth. She is too old to sing now any more. Was she the greatest singer you ever heard? Wunsch nodded gravely. Quite so. She was the most. He hunted for an English word, lifted his hand over his head, and snapped his fingers noiselessly in the air, enunciating fiercely, Kunstlerisch. The word seemed to glitter in his uplifted hand. His voice was so full of emotion. Wunsch rose from the stool and began to button his wadded jacket, preparing to return to his half-heated room in the loft. Thea regretfully put on her coat and hood and set out for home. When Wunsch looked for his score late that afternoon, he found that Thea had not forgotten to take it with her. He smiled his loose, sarcastic smile, and thoughtfully rubbed his stubby chin with his red fingers. When Fritz came home in the early blue twilight, the snow was flying faster. Mrs. Kohler was cooking Hassenpfeffer in the oven, and the professor was seated at the piano, playing the Gluck which he knew by heart. Old Fritz took off his shoes quietly behind the stove, and lay down on the lounge before his masterpiece, where the firelight was playing over the walls of Moscow. He listened while the room grew darker, and the windows duller. Wunsch always came back to the same thing. Ach, ich habe sie verloren. Erudice, erudice. From time to time, Fritz sighed softly. He, too, had lost an erudice. End of chapter 10 Recorded by Kate Sterner